Again, Lord, we ask that you strengthen us, Lord, you challenge us, you shape us, Lord, through the ministry of your word this morning. May your Holy Spirit have freedom, uh, Lord, to search our hearts, to convict us, to challenge us, and to mold us, Lord, to be like your son, Jesus Christ, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, As I think over my years of pastoral ministry, um, I, I think there, there is one thing that uh, parishioners that have been under my care have feared when I have brought it up, and that is when they get a phone call from their pastor or one of the elders saying, hey, do you think it would be okay if I came over and we had a home visit? Because... When a pastor communicates that, the person receiving that begins to wonder, okay, now, why is he coming over? And so they might ask the question, you know, is, is there something specific you want to talk about? And the pastor probably will say something like, you know, hey, that, yeah, there is something I want. There's actually a couple of things I want to talk to you about. I'll, I'll tell you about them when we get there, you know. Um, because he doesn't want to burden them. He doesn't want them to be worried or that kind of stuff. Um, Of course, you know, the phone goes click, and now the house is like, ah! You know, it's like, I got to clean the house, I got to make sure I have coffee, I've got tea prepared, and I got some cookies or some cakes, because they're coming over here, and I want to make sure I make a good impression, and all that kind of stuff. And and they're still thinking to themselves, all right, what is going on here? Why do the elders want to come and see me at this point in time? What have I done And if you're like any other believer, you struggle with things in your heart that maybe other people don't know about or shouldn't know about or you hope don't know about, and you're wondering whether or not they know something about you that maybe they're going to expose or they're going to confront you with something, and all these things start to bounce around in your head. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? So I'm going to come and visit you guys uh, this week. Just want you to be aware of that. Um, You know, panic sets in. Uh, Are they going to confront me? Are they going to expose something about my character? Are they going to correct me? I mean, that's maybe why they want to come into the home. Well, this morning we have uh, a man of God, used by God, who is going to make a house visit. And he has something that he is going to say. Something that seems to be hidden, is thought to be taken care of, seemingly is over with, and yet God has other plans. See, in the story so far, there really has not been much actual presence of God in the narration of the story, but that doesn't mean that God hasn't been present or he's not aware. David has been, in his mind, successful. He's been able to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. He, he got away with adultery in his mind. He got away with lying, with deception, even murder. And the rippling effects of that have, have gone through Israel. And yet, you can just sense that he feels confident and secure and successful, probably even forgotten about the whole thing on a, on, a, on a certain level. And yet, as David reflects back on his life, 
and he reflects back on this time, he wrote a psalm, and it's Psalm 32. Join with me in Psalm 32, and I want you to think about this. We, we learn some things about David as we read his psalms in the context of the narrative story. So he's reflecting back, and I just, just want you to notice some of the things that he says here. Psalm 32 it begins this, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The covering there, he's not talking about him covering it. He's talking about it's being covered by, right, by God, ultimately by the blood. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, hear this, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now friends, there's a sense in which as we, as we read this end of the story that David, yes, he seems to be successful, but at the same time there are things that are going on in him as he thinks about what he has done. He tried to make the most of it. He's trying now to live with it, but... The guilt is still nagging at him. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity, speaking about what happens a little later. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But notice down in verse 8. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, David, as a result of this time, is, is shouting to those who are reading the psalm or singing the psalm, I want you to know so that you don't go down the path that I went and you don't suffer the kinds of things that I have suffered. But now it's time for David to get a pastoral house visit and we're going to enter into the story. Notice the text here. Um, begins with the words, the Lord sent Nathan. And the text in verse 15 ends with, then Nathan went to his house. Okay? So here we have this bracket. Here we have the story. Here we have this encounter. What's going to happen be, you know, between the, you know, the Lord sent Nathan and Nathan went to his house? And here is ultimately um, how we're going to see this passage unfold. What we're going to see here is the restoring power of God's kindness and grace to his servant who is standing firmly and stubbornly in his sin. He hasn't repented of his sin. He's tried to eke his way through and cover up his sin, and he's been successful on human levels to cover up that sin, but he's standing firmly. He's standing stubbornly in his sin. But if you remember, the, the, the melodic line that goes through beginning of chapter 9 and ends up at chapter 12 is the kindness of God. It is the hesed love of God extended, and David now is the one who is bucking against this hesed love. And yet God, we will see, is relentless in pursuing David, even when he is 
standing firmly and stubbornly in his sin. And friends, that is just as true for David as it is for you and me. And probably, probably the application of this text of Scripture is not going to be to challenge you with the things and the sinful struggles that other people in your family or your church know about. Probably the challenge that comes through this passage are the sins that you have stored in your heart that you nurse every once in a while, that you, you tease every once in a while, that no one else even knows about. But God does. And God in his kindness wants to come to you, wants to come to me, and he wants to restore us. This morning we want to begin by understanding that God's kindness is faithful. God's kindness is faithful. You see, we don't, we don't typically think of God confronting or people confronting other people as a means of kindness, but what we have here is God's kindness to David. God is all, always faithful to his children, even when they're standing firmly and stubbornly in their sin. And here, God not only sends a messenger, but also uses a messenger to expose David's sinful heart. Notice, first of all, Grace's messenger. Verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now just get this. You remember this, in the story here, this, this, this word, sent, it's just throughout. There's all these messengers going all over the place, but now it's time for God to send. And he sends Nathan. Now, Nathan is a prophet. And a prophet is a man who speaks for God to man or to people. A priest is the opposite. A priest represents people to God. But Nathan here is a prophet. He is speaking for God to man, and particularly for God to David. So when, when Nathan shows up at the palace to speak to David, we can rightly say that it is God himself who is coming to speak to David. That's why this story, yes, it's David and Nathan, but really you can say this is David and God through the agent of Nathan the prophet. And God has some things to say to David. Now as a prophet... One of the roles and functions of that prophet is the rebuking or the correcting of rulers who have wandered away from God. We see that uh, in a number of different illustrations. That's what Samuel did uh, when he was called uh, to be a prophet with Saul. It's what Elijah was called to do with Ahab. It's what Jeremiah was called to do with the kings of Judah. Prophets spoke the truth from God, ultimately called the word of God, or thus says the Lord, to both encourage as well as to restrain, or you might want to say rebuke, the kings. But all of this was part of God's kindness. All of this, was, this purpose was to, 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 to work through a chosen vessel so that those individuals would be restored back 
to relationship with God. So now why is God coming to David through his prophet? You might say, well, he's coming to rebuke him. He's coming to confront him with his sin. And yes, that may be true, but what's behind even the confrontation? What's behind the rebuke? What is it that God ultimately is seeking to get at? Here, what's behind all this is the fact that God has covenanted with David. David belongs to God. And because that is true, God will not let him go. Now, sometimes in our Christian context, we feel like, oh, I fell flat on my face. I've fallen in sin, and it's so bad. God wouldn't want anything to do with me again. I point you to this text and say, not so, friend, not so. God still pursues his children because they are his children. He is the Father, and there is a covenant relationship that binds us together. And so he is relentless to pursue his children. And friends, we need to be in awe of the fact that God comes after his children when they sin. That he's bound to us. That he is, because of this covenant, he is is loyal to us so much so that even his rebuke is an act of kindness. Because that rebuke is the means by which he begins the process of restoring us back to fellowship. Friends, let me ask you, what kind of father when his child, being so ensnared in sin, runs away from home seeking the the empty and dangerous satisfaction of the world, will not drop all that he's doing and spend hours, countless hours, to pursue that child? Why? Because he loves that child. And when he finds that child the first thing he's going to do is to embrace that child. Why? Because there's a relationship there. Oh, there's time for talk. (laughs) And there will be time for talk here too. But God is more concerned about the relationship and the restoring of that relationship. So we have something similar in the picture that is painted for us in the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew chapter 18. The shepherd is willing to leave the 99 and go after the one. That parable, that story is used actually in a couple of different ways in the New Testament. It's used about someone who's lost, who is an unbeliever that God goes after. It's also used in this context about a believer who has wandered, who's gone astray. That's the context. And that shepherd is willing to leave the 99 safe in their fold to go after that one person. And we know this is a an act of kindness, because what we find right after the story in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, are Jesus' words that we typically call the section on church discipline, which I prefer to call the ministry of biblical love, the ministry of restoration, because that's what it is. God calls us, Jesus instructs us in Matthew 18 to go after that lost sheep. That's the point to find that person, to restore that person back into fellowship. Why? Because they're part of the fold. So God doesn't always send a prophet. Sometimes 
He'll use a pastor. Sometimes he'll use a sermon. Sometimes he'll use an elder. Sometimes he'll use a, you know, a Bible study where you will, you will be hit with God's truth by the virtue of the word of God. And you know, it might be something that's spoken directly to you in the sense of this is the topic of the sermon. Sometimes, and often it's the case, is that God hits you sometimes in ways that you're not expecting in a sermon that isn't necessarily specifically about that topic. And God, through his providence, is working through the messenger to bring up an illustration or to quote some scripture that that is exactly what you needed. But when you say you needed because you're in sin, and it rebukes you, it challenges you, it causes you to think, and you have to do something with that. Sometimes God can use a friend. Now, friends are supposed to, true friends are supposed to stick closer than a brother. And true friends are supposed to give words that might um, wound you, but they're faithful words for the purpose of restoring you. So friends, there's, there's a need here to understand the goal of this kind of instruction, this kind of relationship, is not condemnation, but restoration. That's what Matthew 18 is all about. That's what we have going on here. God is seeking to restore his chosen king, the man after his own heart. And sometimes God sends us experiences or stories or observations that warn us when we were entrenched in our sinfulness. I've experienced this a lot as a pastor. You may have experienced this just as, as being a, a follower of Christ and interacting with other people. Many times as, as a pastor, I, I counsel, and I might be sitting across the table from someone who's just saying, here's what's going on in my life, and, and as they're talking, I'm thinking to myself, mine is not exactly the same, but what you're saying actually is, is compelling to me and forces me to look at something in my own life. And, and when, when the counseling is over, the person leaves, and hopefully I've been a help to them. But I, I find myself sitting down afterwards and saying, Lord, I know you had that person coming here for a reason. And it may have been so that I can help them, but you also use them to expose something in me. And friends, that is Kindness. God wants what is best for his children, and he will use all these different resources to bring it about. So all of these aspects of God's kindness are at work in the life of a Christian, and they're at work in David's life right now as Nathan comes to him. And Nathan now comes uh, not just as the messenger, but he also comes with a message, but it's a certain method that God uses. This is Grace's method. He's going to bring to him a case study. Now, some might call this a parable. I don't know that it's a parable necessarily. This actually may have been a real case, or it may have been just simply a story that Nathan is going to use. Um, no matter what, the, what it is, Nathan is coming and saying, listen, I want, I want to tell you a story. So we might, we might typically expect the prophet to come with a, a full frontal assault, and say something like this, David, you are a wicked, filthy womanizer, as well as a conniving, cruel murderer. And he'd be right. But that isn't always how God works. Because sometimes that is not the kind of approach that sparks the heart, turns the heart. And God uses different methods to draw us to a place where we will listen and to receive his truth. 
Instead, Nathan, or we say God through Nathan, comes to David saying, Sir, I would like to tell you a story about a particular situation. Maybe you could even help me, please. Both are tactics used by God, and both are methods of grace. But what we have here is a case study that is used here as a a godly scheming of grace that goes around the end of our resistance, or David's resistance in particular, and causes him to switch the floodgates on his own darkness by virtue of his response to the situation. In other words, it's a story that illuminates the heart. And it's a story that connects with his sinful behavior that wakes him up. And it's a story that begins this way. There were two men in a certain city. The one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and, and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, some of you have some dogs like this, okay? So you relate to this. Not a lamb, you know, but you got Foofy or whatever the name of your dog is, you know, that's like, you know, this other member of the family, you know, there's like chairs sitting around the table, and then there's like this chair for the dog, and sits up there, right? It's just treated like the family. So we, we connect the dots here. We understand what's going on. Um, verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it. That's kind of a nice way of saying slaughtered it, created a meal out of it, you know, with some apples and things around it, you know, um, for the man who had come to him. Uh, just, we just kind of revisit the story here. Nathan uses this story to awaken and to reveal David's heart of sin. It's a story about three men and a baby, lamb, you catch that, a rich man, a poor man, and a traveling man. The rich man, of course, had many flocks and herds. The the poor man had one ewe lamb that was, and the emphasis here is that this was an intimate, personal, kind of just a very, very um, passionate and intimate relationship, even with this pet, treated like the family. The traveling man comes, the the, the hospitality, um, might want to say, conduct of the day would require the rich man to prepare a meal for that traveler but rather than take from the abundance of his flocks, he takes from this poor man. Now, for us who are reading, we understand the parable or the story pretty well, don't we? David is the rich man with countless wives, countless concubines, countless resources that he could turn to if he needed to satisfy himself. Uriah is the poor man who is faithfully married to his wife Bathsheba, and Bathsheba, of course, is this ewe lamb. And she is devoured by David, the rich man. Now, David hasn't quite gotten it. 
He's still listening to the case study. He's now pondering what should happen. And look, look at what he does in response. David is so blinded in his sinful heart that he presses on, still thinking that he's successful in covering up his sin. That's not even, not even on his mind at this point in time. Instead, he falls right into the trap. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. I mean, he was madder than a hornet. He was hot about this story, which leads me to believe that Nathan presented this not so much as a parable, as, but as a, a true case study, a true fact, because David is, is launching after this man. That's how he's responding here. He says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to what? Die. That seems a little over the top. It's just a lamb. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. All right, we get that. That, that meets the, the laws of, of the Torah. But he says, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David was, was just so angry. And it's fascinating, isn't it? How, how easily we see injustice in others and how quickly we see the fault in others, even when we are in the wrong, even when we are the ones who are responsible for the sin in our own heart that we're not willing to confess. And Jesus spoke about that in the Sermon on the Mount. There he talked about a man who was going around looking at the speck in other people's eye, right? But in his own eye, he had this big plank. I mean, it's hyperbole, but the point is, is well stated, and that's why he uses it. Sometimes we're so consumed with everyone else's little speck, and we have no concept or unwilling to see the beam that is in our own eye. That's what's going on here with David. He's outraged, but he doesn't see his own sinfulness as sinfulness, as an offense against God. It's a sad state of affairs, friends, but that is the way it is when we are enslaved to our own sin. We think that we can see clearly, but we can't. It's all part of what's called the noetic effect of sin, how sin affects your thinking. Noetic has nothing to do with Noah. It's a Greek word. It means that the idea is that sin taints your thinking, twists your thinking. You no longer can think straightly because you have sin now that is permeating your thinking. But David is angry, and rightfully so, but he still doesn't understand that though the story, or through the story, he is actually looking in the mirror. And the thing that he is consumed with the most is that rich, this rich man had no pity. He had no compassion. This was a cold-hearted act of someone who had all these resources and took from this poor man this lamb. How could he? Why would he? What an abuse of authority. And yet the whole time, David is unwittingly condemning himself. Nathan's story, David's anger, now God's revelation. We all know the answer, don't we? See, six times in this story, the use of the word man has been used to set the stage for what Nathan is about to say next. Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Now you wonder how quickly that settled in his heart. Have you ever talked to someone where, where they've heard something and, and they're still trying to connect the dots about what has been said and they're bouncing around, and, you know, just the, the mind's just going all over the place and then all of a sudden it's like, David, you are the man. Now David knows why Nathan is there. Now David understands the whole purpose of this story is to bring him to the place to see his own sinfulness. This is the punchline of the story. This is the point of the visit. David, you are the man who behaves so badly. You are the man who deserves your own self-proclaimed rage. You are the man who has had no pity on those around you. Now, friends, let's just back up a little bit. Be thankful for the way God's kindness is at work in your life. When he exposes things about your own sinful character, your own sinful behavior. Be thankful that God doesn't just let his children go. Be thankful that he is a God who comes after us and pursues us. Be thankful that he used different methods to show our sinfulness. God is always faithful in his kindness. He is relentless in his grace. And friends, if we stopped here, all we would see is God's pursuit. We wouldn't see the resolve And this whole unit will ultimately bring things to a place of resolve, but we still have some some murky water to go through. David now has been exposed, but I want you to notice we move from the fact that God's kindness is furious, or uh, should I say faithful, but now to God's kindness is furious. There is a sense in which what God is now saying through Nathan needs to be heard, especially in our Christian culture today, that doesn't want to think of God except for the fact that he is you know, one big uh, you know, love marshmallow. David has been exposed by God as well as given his own verdict about what should be done. But now Nathan comes and announces God's verdict, God's word to Nathan or to David. And we must feel the fury of God's kindness. Dale Davis says this, Treachery may only appear hideous when viewed against the fidelity it has despised. In other words, if we don't bring up the fury of God, or we can say the wrath of God, then the sins that we have committed do not carry the same kind of weight of offense. If God is just love, 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 then why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? There was a reason he went there. And it wasn't just because of love. It was because a transaction had to take place. It's because sins were committed. It's because a payment had to be made. Yes, it is love, but it's love with a purpose that accomplishes something. We must remind ourselves that God hates sin. And that sin must be dealt with. Notice, first of all, grace. Grace and truth here that is revealed. 
through the words of Nathan. God is going to catalog now just a brief list of his grace toward David. It's a catalog of God's dealing with David. Notice what it says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now we're we're getting formal here. Thus says the Lord. Listen to this. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little... I would add to you as much more. David, let me remind you of something. Let me remind you of who actually has been the one behind your success. Who was the one that raised you up? See, here's what happens. God is addressing the senselessness of David's sin. David is hardly a man who is deprived of anything at this point in time. God has been gracious. He has been faithful to David in so many ways, and God will still be that to David. But God is also addressing the forgetfulness that comes through sin. And friends, when we just are sparked with temptation, we give in to pursuing that temptation, there's a lot of things that we, forget, we begin to forget. Here's David, and he has forgotten who the real source of his success is. That's what God is saying. I know some parents are looking at this and are saying, see, this is grounds for me to say to my kids, hey, listen, I brought you into this world, and I gave you this, and I gave you that, so you need to listen to me. I understand this is where it may come from. But the purpose here is to make sure there's a backdrop, there's a place setting for what God is ultimately going to be saying. When we drift from God because of our sin, we tend to cling to our own riches, our own positions, our own power, rather than cling to God who has brought us this far. When was the last time you honestly sat down and you cataloged how God has carried you through the past year? Or the last five years? Or the last ten years? And for a few of us, the last 20 years. Don't forget. You sit down and you think about, hey, God God provided for us here, and he provided for us here. This was a dark time in our life, but we see that God's hand was at work there. And here we had some difficulty, and God gave us wisdom and understanding. And here we're, we're cataloging all these things that God has done, and we're reminded, you know what, we're here, not because we got ourselves here. We're here because God has been at work. And so we turn around having done that and we give him all the praise, we give him all the glory because he is worthy of it. And we're thankful for the things that we are able to do now. So it is possible that you are guilty of forgetting what God has done in raising you up and establishing you. So that's, that's the first part. Here's this grace, there's this truth that's revealed. Then there's this accusation. So based on that, Here's what God says. God says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. So God accuses David of two sins, in particular the sin of murder, you struck Uriah down, uh, and then adultery, you took the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Well, she was already a wife, but you took her to be your own wife. 
Now, we must be careful here. I think sometimes it's easy to turn to this section of Scripture when we want to you know, find out, you know, how do you deal with sexual sin? And certainly there is a sexual sin that took place here, but there's something far greater, far more... Um, far deeper, you might want to say, than simply dealing with a sexual sin. That sexual sin is the fruit of other things that have taken place in David's life. What is it that this text is telling us that someone like David was doing so that they committed this kind of evil sin in the sight of the Lord? What is it that we must see as the root of our problem when we choose to sin? whether it be lying or cheating or stealing, and go down the list. According to this text, this is what we're told, it is because David despised the word of the Lord. Now, friends, there's something, there's a nugget there. There's, there's an approach that we must see. That The core problem that is exposed here is the fact that David despised the word of the Lord. Now, hear this, to despise God's word is to despise the one who was given that word. Or to put it differently, to trample on the commandment is to trample on the commander. So the question is, how can we be guilty of despising God's word? Let me just give you four thoughts. These are not exhaustive. Number one, when we don't take his commandments seriously. I know the Bible says this. What's the next word? But. That doesn't really mean that. I mean, he, he's, not, he's not such an ogre that he would say those specific things, is he? No, that's, he actually, he means what he says. We don't take his commandments seriously. We see them as mere suggestions or guidelines for living rather than commandments we must obey. Secondly, we can be guilty of despising God's word when we are unwilling to place ourselves under the authority of God's word. But the, the reason God revealed his word to us is so that we would know God, and having known God and what God has revealed about himself, we would then live according to God's will and purposes. Well, how do we know God's will and purposes? It's because of the word of God that we have those things. So when we say, you know what, I, I don't even want to consider what the Word of God says. I want to live my life, and I don't want to be under this. We're despising the Word of God. And that can happen with young people who say, oh, no, not the Bible again. Mom, Dad, please, you know. Get that. But that can also happen with us as adults in more subtler ways. We don't want to place ourselves under the Word of God. In fact, sometimes what we want to do is we want to put ourselves over the Word of God. Oh, we'll still use it. We'll still claim it. It'll still be around. So when people come around us, they'll say, oh, yeah, they use the Word of God, but they're not putting themselves under God's Word. It's a big difference. Another way is when, when we manipulate God's Word for our own purposes. We, we, we take passages and we, we backfill them with our meaning rather than what God's word actually says. This happened with the, the whole psychology community a number of years ago. It says, well, you know, we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Oh, if the Bible says we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, the assumption then is that we love ourselves, so we should love ourselves. So here's, the, here's what we do. We love ourselves. We love our neighbor. We love God. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You just did some 
theological gymnastics that is not what the passage is saying at all. It's saying, listen, we do love ourselves. That's the problem. That's not a good thing. The good thing is to love God, and the good thing is to love our neighbors. It's not a good thing to love yourself. And that's just twisting Scripture, but we despise the word of the Lord when we do that. Number four, when we neglect its presence in our life, and, and simply I mean that. We don't place ourselves under its preaching. We're not, we're not eager to be among other people who are talking about or, or, or discussing the word of God. Um, we're not spending time in a daily basis um, allowing the word of God to minister to us. And friends, one of, the, one of the best key ways that God comes and rebukes us is in our own personal quiet time, isn't it? I mean, I hope so. I hope you're reading God's word in the quietness of your heart. You've got this sin and no one else knows about it but the word of God and it speaks and it, it challenges and it molds and, and pushes you to say, oh, I need to confess this and I need to repent. It's a beautiful thing. When we despise God's word, we are despising God. And that's the heart attitude, friends, that will pave the way for ongoing sin in our lives. Now, there's a consequence that's mentioned here. Alec Moltier says this, Repentance is like throwing a stone in a pond. You can fetch the stone back again, but you cannot stop the ripples from spreading. Now, we know that repentance is coming in David's heart, but the ripples are already spreading. On a human level, the ripples are, are affecting, or have affected Uriah and his family, have affected the people of Israel. But now David, as he listens to God's commentary on his own sin, God will also now reveal to David the consequences of his sin. And it's just punched out there in verses 10 through 12. Really two things. Because of murder... The sword shall never depart from your house. And because of adultery, he says, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor for everyone to see. In other words, there will be violence and there will be sexual sin that will happen in your life. And friends, this is the core of understanding chapters 12 or chapters 13 all the way through chapter 20. Because what you'll have there is you'll have um, Amnon, David's son, will rape Tamar, his sister. Absalom, another son, will come along and take revenge on Amnon for raping Tamar, and he will ultimately murder him. And then Absalom, in his pride, will seek to establish himself as the new king, and in so doing that, will go will put a tent on top of the palace so the whole of the, the people there can see and he will go into the concubines and wives and he will, he will have his pleasure with them in an offensive way against his father. And it's all because of this. Friends, hear this. Sin has its consequences. Natural consequences, devastating consequences. One of the statements that was drilled into my head as a young man attending church was my pastor saying to us as young people, don't sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. Don't sacrifice what is lasting 
what is important on the altar of what you want now. In other words, your words spoken now can be like a fire that brings destruction to everything in their path. Your immorality now might seem pleasurable for the moment, but it will leave its mark on your life, your marriage, your, your parenting, your children, your relationships. Your uncontrollable anger can drive you to destroy people and things and friends. It was a truth from God's word that anchored my heart to say, am I sacrificing that which is permanent on the altar of something that I want now that's immediate? And boy, sin, when it gets a hold of you, wants to say, oh yeah, but that immediate is what you really want, isn't it? And God is saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's something far greater than that. Trust me, lean on me, believe me. Don't believe sin that is speaking to you. Friends, that is the consequence. So this is, this is furious. God is serious about sin. He is not happy with David at all. It's evil in his sight. But God's kindness is faithful, it's furious, but it's also forgiving. What makes David any different than Saul at this point? Saul despised the word of the Lord. He didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. He didn't obey the voice of the Lord. Now, when when, when he's confronted, he seems to kind of say want to repent, but it just it seems all formal and and religious in his response. And ultimately, we know that's the case because God rejects his response. But David had despised the word of the Lord, but there's a difference here. The difference is that God's true servant repents and ultimately is forgiven. I'll put it differently. The state of a man's heart is revealed in his response to the criticism of the word of God. In other words, when the word of God comes and exposes the heart and is critical about sin in the heart, how that person responds tells you everything about them. That's what we have here. Did David sin? What's the answer? Yes. Was it a scandalous sin? Yes. Was it a terrible sin? Yes. But now when confronted, we'll see, he repents. So David's repentance, or David's confession, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now please notice that these words of David's repentance are short, but they're pregnant with meaning. Sometimes less is more. A repentant heart truly is simply 
repentant. There's no hint of excuse or blame shifting going on here. There's no searching for a loophole. There's no sidestepping because of some kind of perceived human weakness. This is just the way I am. God, you created me like this. None of that. No, he acknowledges his guilt openly, candidly, and clearly. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, friends, if, if you, have, you have come to faith, having come out of a, a Catholic context, there's a part of you probably that still struggles a little bit with the, the, the desire and the want or the temptation to want to add to your words of repentance some deeds of penance. <laughs> this feeling that I have to, have to do something to show God how sorry I am and how truly repentant I am. But we don't see any of that here. What we have is a heart that says, God, you're right. I have sinned, and I've sinned against you. There's no need to, to, to repeat the mantra of, of Hail Mary to somehow prove to God and, and, and just kind of show him how remorseful you are. See, God is not impressed with any spiritual showmanship. What he's moved by is the confession and the humility of words that come out of a heart of repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, to flesh them out, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4 in particular, give us a little picture as David reflects back to this moment. Notice what he says. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. There's that said love again. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now friends, get this. David knew he sinned against Bathsheba. He knew he'd sinned against Uriah. He knew he'd, he'd involved um, other people in his sin he understood that he had sinned against the nation as being their king and in, in, in abusing his power and committing these sinful acts, but he ultimately knew that his sin was not horizontal but vertical. It was against God himself. And notice what he says there in verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So when God says, hey, David, look what I did. Why did you do this? Here's the consequence. What is David saying? God, you're right. God, you're right. I have sinned against you. So there's David's repentance. Notice God's forgiveness. Again, not a lot of words here. And David said to, to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not Die. Now don't let that get past you. Let it settle a while. There was actually no legal reason for God to say that to David. According to the law, David deserved to die. And God would be just to exercise that judgment on him. But God's forgiveness here is undeserved. It is born out of kindness. It is his grace at work in the heart of one of his servants. 
Now, if God can forgive David, then he can surely forgive us. Because of our sin, we certainly deserve death, but God has put away our sin. He has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west, and we're forgiven people who are now clothed with an alien righteousness. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's not our own righteousness. God doesn't come and say, oh, now you are righteous. Look how righteous you are. He says, no, you are righteous because of an alien righteousness, because of Christ and his righteousness that now surrounds you, that now covers you. I think sometimes we have approached forgiveness in a wrong way. We've become, let's put it this way, we have a mechanical view of forgiveness. It's kind of like going to a vending machine. You know, okay, I lied, I cheated, I stole something, and so you kind of, God, I want to get this right, and you go up to the vending machine, it's like, okay, what, if you lied, press C5, okay, you know, C5, and out comes a forgiveness packet. All right, I cheated, and that's like, that's, you know, that's H7, boom, you know, you see it winding, oh, great, I got the forgiveness. So all I need to do now, if I've sinned against God, I go to God, I press the right buttons, I put the right kind of prayer money in, and boop, here comes the forgiveness. You see, it becomes very mechanical. There's nothing personal going on. It's simply going through the motions. It's It's a religious thing. Instead, we need to have a a miracle view of forgiveness. Now hear this. One that is both in both awe and, and, and confidence boldly approaching the throne of grace. Here, listen. Every time I sin and every time I come to God and confess my sin, I must be in awe of the miracle of the cross. That God would have done that with his son for me. There's a miracle going on there. There's a a plan from the Father, from the Godhead, to restore me to himself through the sacrifice of his son. Friends, that's not mechanical. That's relational. It's a miracle. It's a constant miracle that we are forgiven. And we recognize that we don't deserve God's kindness. We, we see our sin as an offense to God, but we can come broken and humbly to the throne of grace and be restored in our relationship to him. God pursues us. God wants that relationship. It's not this mechanical thing. It's far more than that. But notice now sin's consequence. Nevertheless, in other words, you're forgiven. But David, there is still a consequence that you have to realize is going to take place. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, you have despised the Lord, you've brought shame to the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now, we might be shocked at this. This child that we would put in the innocent category is now going to die in one sense as a substitute for David. 
And that should rightfully shock us. Why would God do that? Why would that child suffer like that? Why would that child have to die for David and his sin? What's going on here? What God is saying to David is this. David, for you, the experience of forgiveness, in order for you to experience that forgiveness, a son must die. You will be forgiven, but there is a cost. And, and what a cost it is. It's the death of your son. Your consequences are placed on another. Now, there's a lot more to say about the son and the death of the son, and that will happen next week. And, and, and I want to encourage you to, to study it over yourself and to be, be mindful that there's a lot of good pastoral stuff that's going to come out of that. But at the same time, this is also true for us. For our sins to be forgiven, your sins, my sins, the dark sins that are in the the recesses of your heart, hidden away where no one else can see, that God knows about, for those to be forgiven, justice has to be meted out. A son has to die. An innocent son. Of course, that son was the son of God incarnate who came to this earth to die a horrible and terrible death that he didn't deserve so that we would be forgiven. David's story, or say in David's story, both a lamb is slaughtered and a son must die because of the immensity of David's sin. But in the gospel story, the lamb must be slaughtered and the son must die because of the immensity of our sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We kind of soften the gave, don't we? It's not that he came to earth. It's that he went to a cross and he died a bloody death. He was a sacrifice once for all. John 1, 10, 29, here we have um, John the Baptist proclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My friends, we have a Lamb, we have a Son. And it's screaming at us that a payment must be made for sin. The justice of God is carried out. Nathan came to David in verse 1. Now Nathan goes to his house in verse 15. Nathan has done his duty before God. But I want you to think about this. It's a reminder that the responsibilities of pastoral leadership are often hard. But ultimately the acts of kindness that are measured out by elders who care for the souls, care for the flock are justified. This is not easy work, friends, but it's loving work, it's kind work, it's covenant work. One of the reasons we say, I want to join this church is to say, I want a covenant together for my soul's sake. Which means you say, 
If I'm struggling in sin, I want the body of Christ to come and to help me and surround me, confront me if necessary, rebuke me if necessary. Why? So that I can be reconciled to God. So that I can be restored back to fellowship. Now here's some concluding thoughts. Just four things briefly. I want to just rattle off to you just to wrap it all up. Number one, be thankful for the Nathans in your life. (laughs) Sometimes there are hard conversations that have to come from people who you thought loved you. Guess what? They do. Now certainly someone wanting to be a Nathan can come to you in a wrong way. But what's behind all that? Be thankful for the Nathans in your life. They're agents of kindness. Be thankful that God in his kindness has given you example after example after example in the word of God to warn you not to pursue the path of sin. David is one such example. I just need to throw out a couple others. Samson. Achan. You can just go down the so many examples out there of just warning to say, listen, this is really dumb. This is really foolish. This is an offense to God. And look what happens when you give into it. Number three, be humble to receive God's kindness and grace, even when it hurts. So if it comes through a sermon, if it comes through a time of devotions, if it comes through talking with your friends, if it comes even from another avenue, be humble to receive it. Know that God is at work. And he's seeking to refine your heart to follow him faithfully. And finally, be joyful that God is relentless in his pursuit of his children. He does not give up. He pursues them. He chases them down. At times it may not feel like kindness. But in the big scheme of things, and from God's perspective, it is. Lord, help us today. Because we we find, Lord, our identity ultimately in you. We are called your children. We've been brought into the family of God. We are new creatures created in Christ Jesus for good work. And although our sin is paid for because of the cross, we still give in to the temptation of sin and we still need to have our relationship restored to you. Lord, help us to be sensitive to that. Not to be like Saul who just kind of performs a religious duty to somehow ward off any confrontation of sin, but to be more like David, yes, sinful, wicked David, who when confronted and is fully exposed, says, I have sinned against the Lord. But may we not be afraid to say those words, to pray those words, or even to sing those words as part of our praise for who you are and for what you've done for us. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.